Everyone talks about Rome to see it fall. You can't tell people about this immortal empire that dominated a civilization for a thousand years and not having them salivating to see it end. But that story is long and complicated, sad and slow. They bled out by a thousand cuts before the final blow was dealt. If you want to discuss the greatest defeat of the Romans, you must instead cast your eyes to their golden age and learn that at the height of their glory, under the most celebrated emperor, they were def dealt a defeat so dramatic it permanently altered the goals of the empire. I speak, of course, of Teutoburg Forest. Welcome all, welcome one to the No One Is Competent podcast, where we aim to show that everyone in history was bad at more or less everything. I am Azalea, and I am joined, of course, by the man with the voice like sandpaper, Jay. Hello, I hope you are all enjoying this, uh, what grit of sandpaper would I be? Like, uh... If you have to give it a number. Relatively high grade. I think so, yeah. Makes sense. Fun fact, kids. Uh, in the first, like, four weeks of this podcast existing, I had two separate friends tell me that they really liked Jay's voice. I told that to Jay, and he told me that I was lying. <laughs> so. I still think you're lying. I mean, the, 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 the self-confidence... Uh, in this podcast this has got to be brought down somehow otherwise i'm just going to inflate our egos to the moon jay how have you been doing how's your week um, pretty okay more or less uh yeah just uh yeah just a normal week for me i just went and saw everything everywhere all at once oh i people seem to like that it's one of the best pieces of art I have seen in an incredibly long time. Like, it's been a hot minute since I've seen a movie that was a 10 out of 10. And when you drive in back from the theater, F, F, like, you know, you, there is no way to determine if something's a 10 out of 10. You just know. Like, you can't add it up. You can't figure with the numbers. You can't do your little titrations to tell you something's a 10 out of 10. You know in your balls that it's a 10 out of 10. And this movie is just perfection for me. I was driving home last night like the whole world was a better place. Um, that being said, I think the vast majority of people will not like it. Uh, my sister was there and she hated it. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be one of those films that has like, I wouldn't call it like a cult following, but you know, it's a niche hit. Um, cause this is doing quite well in the box office. Uh, so it, it's a movie that occupies a genre that until two months ago was only occupied by, to my knowledge, a single other film. That being The End of Evangelion. <laughs> and now we have two of those movies. This one written by people who seem to be in a much better place in life. I see. Which is nice. The film has a very happy ending uh, that I enjoyed very much. Um, it is long. It feels longer than it is because of 
certain directorial decisions that I don't really want to spoil. What I will say is that pe there's going to be like four types of people who go to see this movie. There's going to be moms and people who aren't moms. And that's going to kind of determine partially how you, you see this. Or people who have felt some sort of overwhelming romantic pure love. And then there are going to be people who have experienced ego death and people who have not experienced ego death. And I don't want to be, like, pretentious or something, but if you have not done a large amount of hallucinogenic drugs, I, I feel like there is a level of this movie that you will not connect with. <laughs> um... Like, in this movie, they call it uh, the, the bagel, but you need to have, in my case, seen the spiral in order to fully sync up with this movie. <laughs> I, I am not kidding. There, there is a part of the film that attempts to simulate uh, what ego death is like. And it is uh, traumatizing and brilliant, and maybe it affected me more because... So, Jay... When you get, like, really, really fucking high, like, the reason people say that they they're, they're, oh, I'm time traveling, bro. It's like, what does that mean, right? Well, one of the many things it can mean is that when your brain gets stuck in a state that where it's operating differently, when you then leave that state, the memories from that state will be very hazy because your brain was literally, like, working differently. Um, and when, when you re-enter that state, you then sort of sync up with all of your memories of being in that state before. Does that make sense? So, if you've experienced that level of high, like, four times, on that fifth time, you will remember every other time incredibly crisply. And you will sometimes feel, because memories will be so vivid, like you are in those other times. And I am telling you that this movie, like, kind of made me sync up with some previous experiences. All of which are incredibly unpleasant. Uh, I have very violent, incredibly torturous ego deaths. Uh, I got a lot of shit in my soul and it does not uh take well to being stirred up and uh melted down into its pure form had no idea what to expect other than some cool camera work got a lot of cool camera work an incredibly brilliantly beautiful message and one of the most unique films i have ever seen that that goes where art has tread very lightly so far which is using ego death to explore love versus nihilism is what i would say the movie is about there's also a lot of cool kung fu scenes and a lot of jokes yeah well i guess instead of talking about ego death today we're probably going to be talking more about a bunch of soldiers dying which is Somewhat related, I suppose. I mean, we could still do an entire podcast about ego death. Varus, Varus might have had a moment of ego death during the uh, the events of today's episode. <laughs>
when you get your ass kicked on the battlefield so hard, you straight up dissociate. Yeah, something like that. Okay, fine, Jay. Tell the people what we're talking about. Well, today, uh, as mentioned, we're talking about the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. This battle, which took place in AD 9, is one of the most famous Roman military defeats and was dealt to them by the hands of an alliance of Germanic nations. Year 9. Yeah, in the the single digits. (laughs) That's just fun. Like, that's cute. Like, I like being in year (laughs) 9. It's kitschy. Yeah. You might not know this, but, like, when did the Romans start their calendar? The Romans, if I'm recalling correctly, dated their calendar either to Romulus and Remus um, and the founding of Rome. Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head exactly what year they, you know, they supposed that to be. 700 or 600 something BC? Something like that. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, like many events from antiquity, is mostly known through us through a handful of ancient sources describing it and its aftermath. Today, we will be relying primarily on two ancient historians, those being Cassius Dio and Valius Paterculus. Dio and Paterculus provide the most extensive descriptions of the course of the battle, and Paterculus was actually rolling close enough to the event itself that he was probably able to interview actual survivors. Hmm. Now, the historians Publius Forus, as well as Tacitus, also mentioned the defeat in Teutoburg Forest in their writings, but they're less descriptive when it comes to the battle itself. They're mostly focused on other things. The relevant portions of these authors' works can be found on the website called olivius.org, and that's a really useful website created by the Dutch historian Jonah Lendering. The accompanying article on Teutoburg Forest, which is also written by Lendering, is a very thorough look at the battle and its importance. And in addition to these sources, we'll also be relying on the book Teutoburg Forest, AD 9, The Destruction of Varus and His Legions by Michael McNally, as well as a graduate thesis paper titled Rome in the Teutoburg Forest, written by Lieutenant Commander James L. Venkis of the United States Navy. Do we, like, can we use archaeology to learn about this battle? Like, have we found it? Do do we, like, know, have we found, like, the weapons and bodies that we think? You know, uh, we'll go into that a little bit later, but this is one of the few battles, uh, non-siege battles from ancient history, where we actually know the location. We found the battlefield. We, you know, archaeologists have found bones, armor, weapons, artifacts, coins with Varus's insignia stamped on them. So we're pretty certain that, you know, we know where this exactly uh, took place. So the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest happened because the Romans were in Germania. So, now let's talk about the Romans getting into Germania. Now, y'all all have some knowledge of what the Roman Empire was on some level, so we don't have to go all the way back to Romulus and Rebus or whatnot. We're going to start with the point where the Romans have more or less made the Mediterranean region their 
home turf, and now they are expanding north into, like, proper Europe, okay? So the area known as Gaul, corresponding roughly to modern-day France, Belgium, and Luxembourg, is conquered by the Romans under Julius Caesar in the 50s BC. Caesar's conquest of Gaul would bring the Roman Republic into increasing conflict with a new group of peoples, the Germans. This would not be the first military conflict between the two groups. Indeed, the Roman legionary system that we'll describe later has its origins in the Cinnabarian War of... Cimbrian. The Cimbrian what? Cimbrian. Cimbrian. Latin shit. I don't know if anything's ever a a, a K or an S. It's just fucking rude. Anyway, that took place in 1113 to 101 BC. And that was a war between Rome and the German Cimbri. But the conquest of Gaul would be the start of a period of prolonged piecemeal warfare between the Romans and various Germanic tribes. Yeah, you know, this is kind of a recurring trend in the history of empires. The more you expand your territory, the more territory you have to defend from potential enemies who are now closer to you. This pretty much continues until you make it all the way to the ocean, um, or somebody stops you in the path. Caesar himself would fight several battles against Germanic tribes in order to assert Roman authority and prevent them from raiding into Gaul. Um, You know, he was interested in protecting the Gallic tribes, as well as Germanic tribes that had allied with Rome. In 58 BC, he defeated the powerful Suebi at the Battle of Vostres, and in 55, he famously had his legions construct a wood bridge over the Rhine in just 10 days, thereby displaying Rome's ability to campaign beyond traditional natural barriers. Caesar, however, did not seek to permanently conquer all of Germania. Instead, he asserted that the Rhine River was the boundary between the Gauls and the Germans, a position that would be maintained by subsequent Roman officials in the area. And it's kind of cool that the Rhine River is, like, what separates France and Germany today. Yeah. When Augustus Caesar became ruler of Rome in 27 BC, ushering in the transition from republic to empire, he immediately set about reorganizing his dominion. The army was reduced in size from over 50 legions to just 28, and the new provincial borders were drawn up. Gaul itself was split into three provinces. A heavily military presence was retained in Gallia Belicia, the province that bordered the Rhine River. As warfare between the Romans and the Germans continued throughout the last century BC. You gotta remember, at this time in history, and throughout most history, war is rarely fought the way like we think of wars now, as like two nation states or groups kind of like constantly trying to kill each other. Often you'll have, you know, periods of decades where, you know, you're over there and the asshole's over there and sometimes they'll go and try and fuck with you and sometimes you'll try and go fuck with them. But, like, is is seasonal trying to kill each other. Not, like, dedicated, we're gonna do this until it's done trying to kill each other. Yeah. While it would take years for the Romans to pacify Gaul completely... By the beginning of the 1st century AD, the region was progressing swiftly along the path of Romanization. 
The so-called barbarian Gauls were adapting to Roman law, culture, and language, becoming increasingly civilized in the eyes of the Romans. This was in stark contrast to the nature of Rome's relationship with the Germans. Now, since most of our listeners are probably less familiar with the ancient Germanic peoples than they are with the Romans, it's important to go over a bit of their cultural and historical background. Now, at this point, it's worth noting that the concept of what exactly constitutes and defines this group of people is a topic of great debate in historiography. Uh, and that's largely due to the lack of historical documents written by the Germans themselves. The documents we have mostly come from the Roman perspective, such as through Caesar's own writings in his commentaries on the Gallic War. Even the word German or Germania is, comes through us through Latin. We don't know what these people called themselves as a collective, if they even had a collective term for themselves. Yeah, so we, to this day, call these people the, the Germanic peoples, because that's what the Romans called them. But these people we all call Germanic peoples, they wouldn't necessarily recognize each other of being, well, not just a cohesive political unit, but a cohesive cultural unit. Yeah. Like, they don't all speak the same languages, they don't all worship the same gods, and they certainly don't all get along. Yeah. And, like, really the Romans, especially Caesar, end up kind of defining them just by differentiating them from the Gauls. The Gauls live west of the Rhine, and the Germans live to the east. Uh, the Germanic tribes seem to have lacked the Druidic clergy of the Gauls, and they practiced farming to a lesser degree. In general, they're described as Caesar as a bit more disorganized, wild, and barbarian than their Gallic neighbors. That being said, we can't really take Caesar's words at face value. Uh, we know through archaeological evidence that the division between Gaul and the Germans was far less clear than the Romans made it out to be. Um, basically, there was a lot of you know movement and marriage and whatever across the Rhine River, and as a result, various finds in both modern-day France and Germany display elements of both cultures. You know, the archaeological record also points towards the Germanic people being a bit more advanced, um, you know, using the Roman sense of the word, than Caesar makes them out to be. They probably did have at least decently large settlements, not massive cities, but they're not, you know, the wild hunter-gatherers that you know, the Romans sometimes portray them as. And here, I just like to differentiate, you know, Germania and modern-day Germany. Because we will use the term Germany and Germans a lot in this episode, just, you know, because it's easy. Um, the people we're talking about in this episode aren't necessarily the same as, you know, the modern-day people we call the Germans. We're talking yeah. about, you know, thousands of years ago, about groups who've moved around and, you know, sprung up and gone extinct since then. And to project, you know, our modern notions of Germany on them would be very incorrect. In fact, even German yep. historians, they'll call this Germania, whereas, you know, they call it the actual country today Deutschland. Um, you know, they differentiate it from modern-day Germany. Yeah, Germany is a political construct that was invented in the 1870s. Germania is literally just a region of land in which there were some people. Yeah. And famously, there was a lot of population movement 
in Northern Europe over the course of the last 2,000 years. Lots of different groups coming in, especially in the later Roman uh, period. Lots of groups going to other places, like, you know, Saxons going to Britain. And it's very possible that the people who are fighting this battle are not exactly the people who are the ancestors of uh, some dude living in Hamburg right now. Yeah. But they are in an area that we we referred to and that the Romans refer to as Germania. So that is all really that mean. And the Romans are trying to bring them civilization, which, of course, civilizing the Germans... Excellent idea, historically. <laughs> Totally a 100% great thing to do. Oh, I could be wrong. What we know for certain is that the area west of the Rhine was dominated by a group speaking Celtic languages, who we and the Romans know as Gauls. The area to the east was dominated by people speaking Germanic languages. The Rhine was not an impermeable border, but it was a strong barrier nonetheless. Remember, this is a point in history where crossing a river is a potentially lethal exercise a lot yeah. of the time. and the Rhine is a pretty big river. Germania itself was divided amongst dozens, maybe hundreds of tribes. Some of them would come to ally with Rome, some would oppose it, and many would do both over the course of history. Now, as aforementioned, Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul led the way to a state of continuous political and military interactions between Rome and the Germans. And after Augustus Caesar, Julius's uh, adoptive son, reorganized the provinces of Gaul in the 20s BC, he set about directing Roman efforts towards Germania. The frontier with Germania was split into two military provinces, Germania Inferior in the north and Germania Superior in the south. Um, if you're wondering the meaning of those, inferior and superior basically means uh, lower and upper and it's based on the flow of the river, um, the Rhine. The Rhine, like the Nile, flows from south to north, so Upper Germany, like Upper Egypt, is in the south. Cool. The Romans would found cities on the west bank of the Rhine, namely Santan, Cologne, and Mainz, and they basically were doing this to aid in administering and pacifying the region. The years between 16 BC and 680 would see Roman armies under the command of Drusus and Tiberius both adoptive sons of Augustus, campaigned extensively and generally quite successfully east of the Rhine, asserting Roman authority all the way to the banks of the Elba. The Elba, for context, is not quite at the, um, you know, the furthest uh, western borders of Germany, but it's pretty far, or sorry, eastern borders, but it's pretty far close. As further camps were built in Magna Germania, the term used for this area between the rivers, it looked increasingly like this area as a whole was on the road to being integrated into the Roman Empire, just as Gaul had been a century prior. Of course, though, Roman rule still remains very loose. It's built through alliances with the local tribes. Roman power on the ground is very tenuous. It's in this landscape that we can now introduce the main characters of today's episode, Publius Quinctilius Varus and Arminius. How much practice did it require to get down Publius Quinctilius Varus? Uh, it takes just guessing and knowing that nobody speaks Latin as, you know, an actual, like, 
first language anymore, so who cares? <laughs> if you complain, you're wrong. Damn, this is fun. All the episodes are going to be about Latin shit from now on. <laughs> like, we could go around calling Caesar Kaiser every time we, we see his name, but we don't really do that because, you know, we don't care. Yeah, and also it's been a while since I've played uh, Fallout New Vegas. <laughs> so, Varus, of course, we're talking about the times before he became a League of Legends champion. Not much is known about his early life, though as ancient figures go, he's relatively well documented. Born around 46 BC as a member of the Quint... Quint a member of an important patrician Roman family of no major... It, it. Listen, he has a family, I'm not going to say its <laughs> name. But he has a daddy. His daddy's name is Sexus. Sexus is a bureaucrat in the Roman Republic. Sexus sided with the Senate faction of Brutus and Cassius against the Triumvirs Octavian Mark Anthony, and because that was a great idea, he ended up committing suicide at the Battle of Philippi upon that faction's defeat. You may know about this if you had to read uh, some Shakespeare when you were in 10th grade. In spite of his father's politics, Varus would go on to have a close relationship with the court of Emperor Augustus. Varus married a daughter of Agrippa, Augustus' closest advisor, making him the brother-in-law of Augustus' adopted son Tiberius. Which must not have been fun, because Tiberius was an asshole. <laughs> Varus seems to have befriended both Augustus and Tiberius and served as one of Rome's consuls in 13 BC alongside the latter. Yeah. Now, by 8 BC, Varus had been appointed as the governor of the Roman province of Africa, which was a very prestigious posting. Uh, now, that being said, the following year, he was sent from Africa to become the governor of Syria. We don't exactly know why, but he just was. Uh, now, later, Roman historians would depict Varus as corrupt and inept. Quoting from P Paterculus, Varus was a man of mild character and of quiet disposition, somewhat slow in mind as he was in body, and more accustomed to the leisure of the camp than to the actual service in war. This is high-level burns from <laughs> yeah. Roman historians yeah. right here. That he was no despiser of money is demonstrated by his governorship of Syria, he entered this rich province a poor man, and left this poor province a rich man. However, it is worth taking that description of Varus with a, with a grain of salt. These historians are writing years after the fact, and they likely sought to blame the defeat at Teutoburg entirely on Varus. The depiction of Varus as a corrupt leader allows for a retelling of the story of Teutoburg that avoids blaming the Roman state as a whole, and it also serves as a neat morality play. A brief aside in ancient historians, most of these people are what we call moralists. They're telling history in part to, you know, imbue a sense of morality upon their readers, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. On this history as, you know, a story that you learn from. And therefore, you know, you can see how this fits. You know, don't be like Varus, and you won't get three legions destroyed by Germans. Yeah. Never let storytellers write history. We're just going to lie about everything. 
and and I, and I do mean everything. I'll I'll change people's races. I'll change the names if I think it's a better story. I'll 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 fuck with with, with anything. No, nothing is sacred. I only care about entertaining people. Now. The historian Josephus writes of Varus in the context of his governorship of Syria, and describes how Varus effectively put down a Jewish revolt that occurred following the death of King Herod. In general, Josephus depicts Varus as a capable and fair governor, that his suppression of the revolt involved the crucifixion of at least 2,000 rebels, and Varus is noted as being lenient to those who supported Rome or remained neutral. Of course, crucifying Jewish rebels would have a great track work record as an excellent tool by the Romans that was incredibly successful and uh, led to lasting uh, stable control over Judea and uh, totally did not have <laughs> any wider uh, side effects. Yeah, never, never went to anything. There were three, I mean, beyond the Christianity <laughs> part, there were three separate yeah. Jewish revolts. <laughs> oh, there are like, a lot of revolts, and, yeah. <laughs> and, when the, and when the Romans went in the last time, like, the, the, the Israelis, rem, like, tell their people about those battles to this day, shit was so bad. Yeah. Um, Judea was uh, not the place to be. No. In the Roman Empire. Not a fun time. No. But in uh, year 6 of AD, Varus was appointed governor of all of Germania, tasked by the emperor with transforming the regions from the Rhine to the Elba into a normal Roman province. This made Varus both the political and military commander of Germania. Like, his last posts were not military posts, necessarily. I mean, he had military powers, but he wasn't, like, going to be fighting all the time. But if you get made governor of Germania, which is not a fully settled territory, you, you are going to be expected to, to get your hands a lot more dirty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Africa and Syria have been part of the Roman Empire now for, for decades, Um I should note by Africa, we don't mean all of Africa. That's what the Romans called basically Libya, Tunisia, and like a bit of Algeria. But like, that's been a part of Rome since the, the Punic Wars. I don't know. This kind of sounds like it's a demotion. Like you go from ruling over you know, Syria, this ancient land of riches, to uh, dealing with barbarians in the cold European woods, but you could also see this as Augustus sending one of his most trusted and crack guys to deal with a difficult problem. Yeah, it is probably a demotion in terms of lifestyle. <laughs> I know which I would prefer. Um but, you know, if if you win military victories, there is, you know, the chance of great fame and triumphs and everything. And you're more likely to have these really Dramatic military victories in Germania than in Syria. Now, Cassius Dio would offer his own explanation for the German revolt, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, by claiming that as a governor, Varus forcibly accelerated the already ongoing process of Romanization. Quoting from Dio, the barbarians were adapting themselves to Roman ways, were being accustomed to hold markets, and were meeting in peaceful assemblages 
They had not, however, forgotten their ancestral habits, their native manners, their old life of independence, or the powers derived from arms. Hence, so long as they were unlearning these customs gradually and by the way, uh, as one might say, under careful watching, they were not disturbed by the change in their manner of life, and were becoming different without knowing it. But when Quinctilius Varus became governor of the province of Germania, and in the discharge of his official duties was administering the affairs of these peoples also, he strove to change them more rapidly. Besides issuing orders to them as if they were actually slaves of the Romans, he extracted money as he would be from subject nations. To this they were in no mood to submit, for the leaders longed for their former ascendancy and the masses preferred their accustomed condition to foreign dominance. In other words, Roman soft power was already achieving the effect of modifying the behavior of the Germans to be more like that of their own. But by forcing this process instead of letting it play out, Varus incited a revolt amongst the German population through his lack of cultural awareness. Now, we'll never know for certain if Dio's summation of Varus's policies is accurate. I mean, you know, this is kind of part of rolling the dice when you study things like this. Is You know, this is, he could be pulling all this out of his ass. But in any case, revolts against Roman rule were normal throughout the empire. It was fairly typical for a large-scale rebellion to occur not long after an area had been captured by Rome. Vercingetorix's rebellion in Gallia and Boudicca's fucking names. Bodisas in Britain are two famous examples of this. In fact, at the same time of Varus's appointment to the governorship of Germania, a rebellion against Roman rule broke out in the Balkans. Eight legions were sent from Germania and Gaul to the Balkans, leaving the Roman military presence in the area under strength, which in the novel business is what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> Varus, nonetheless, had at his disposal at least five legions and an unbeknown amount of auxiliary forces. Amongst those auxiliary forces were an officer of German birth, a man named Arminius. Unfortunately, very little is known of Arminius's life, allowing many to fill in the details with their own speculation and, more often than not, imagination. Arminius was born around 18 BC as the son of Sejimer, the chieftain of a Germanic tribe known as the Cherusci. Now, around 11 BC, the Cherusci found themselves at war with the Romans. During this conflict, the Germans managed to ambush a Roman column and inflict heavy losses on it, but the Romans, under the leadership of the general Drusus, nonetheless were able to defeat the Cherusci and force their surrender. Sejimer's sons, including Arminius, were thus taken to Rome as hostages. And hostage does not necessarily mean you are tied up and thrown in a cell in this period of history. And in fact, being a hostage is often like, can be a relatively cushy life. It kind of just means that you're like, a diplomat, but you didn't choose to be a diplomat. Yeah, that's a very good An ambassador by lack of choice, really. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Arminius was thus not the wild barbarian he sometimes made out to be. He was Roman-educated and entered into military service as a cavalry officer in the Exilia. And we'll describe the Exilia a little bit later, 
But basically, this is the element of the Roman military made up of those who were primarily not citizens of Rome. Arminius could likely speak Latin fluently and would have had a deep understanding of Roman military tactics. Paterculus, who may have met Arminius personally, as both served as cavalry officers in Paranoia around AD 4, does provide his own descriptions of Arminius' character. Quote, Thereupon appeared a young man of noble birth, brave in actions and alert in mind, possessing an intelligence quite beyond the ordinary barbarian. He was, namely, Arminius, son of Sejimer, a prince of that nation, and showed in his countenance and in his eyes the fire of the mind within. Damn, Peter, let's keep it in your pants. <laughs> He's also likely trying to create a good narrative here, contrasting the corrupt and slothful Varus with the dashing young German prince. And if I could speak about narrative for a moment, like, this is a guy who has a story that, like, could still hold sway in Hollywood today. Like, you have this guy who is both, like, the, the, the wild barbarian man, but he can also be the suave, educated Roman you have this guy uh, who has seen his father's defeat, and though they thought they had trained the barbarian out of him, he holds this grudge for decades, and he bides his time before slowly and suddenly revolting against the great empire that once filled his people. You know, it's is 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 right out of Shakespeare, really. Yeah. I should note, there actually is a Netflix series right now called Barbarians about Arminius. I've not watched it. I hear it's pretty good, actually. Um, but it, it kind of shows, like, yeah, this story is very, um, it's very easy to turn into media. For several years, Arminius served the Romans dutifully, and by around AD 6, he had returned with them to his native Germania. Arminius's high position in the auxiliaries meant that he was likely a part of Varus's council of war, you know, his innermost circle, and Varus seems to have held Arminius in high regard. For Varus, Arminius would have seemed like the ideal ally. His German origins provided him with knowledge of the land and its people, and his high birth would aid Varus in negotiations with the tribes. You know, they would respect him because he's a prince. But his Roman education and service made him a prime example of the sort of transformation that Rome sought to accomplish in Germania. Yeah, the guy's a literal embodiment of narrative. <laughs> we'll never actually know when or why Arminius decided to take up arms against Rome. Did he always seek to rebel against those who had defeated his father? Did he make the decision while on some campaign, while helping the Romans conquer and crush some enemy? Or did he only come to his plan when he returned to his native country? Our Roman sources provide no answer to this question. They do all agree, however, that Arminius was the leader of the German revolt, and that he planned it while remaining visibly loyal to Rome until the last possible minute. All that we know is that in the lead-up to the year AD 9, Arminius settled on an ambitious plan. He would use his Roman position and his German birth to secretly negotiate a Germanic alliance with himself at its head and lead the Romans into a trap before revealing his treachery. 
along with the Chiruchi, a number of other tribes were to be evolved, including the... This is why I try and get Jada to do these parts. <laughs> the Brusteri, the Chachi, and the Angravari. I actually like Angravari. It's not bad. Time. Now, the revolt that would culminate in our Battle of the Tudorburg Forest would begin in the ninth year, Addy Dominion. But planning for it likely began even earlier. If Roman historians are to be believed, the uprising was very carefully planned and executed, occurring in steps instead of all at once. The Germans began with distracting the Romans by involving them in a series of internal disputes, essentially calling on Rome to mediate between tribal squabbles. As Varus has described it being more concerned with legal proceedings than with his military duties, this may have been a way of playing to his tendencies, which Arminius would have been familiar with. Paterculus describes the Germans as trumphing up a series of fictitious lawsuits and, quote, expressing their gratitude that Roman justice was settling these disputes in order to bring Varus to, quote, such a complete degree of negligence that he came to look upon himself as a city praetor administering justice in the forum, and not a general in command of an army in the heart of Germania. Dio also describes how the Germans appealed to the Romans for help with their local affairs, such as arresting robbers and guarding merchant convoys. Varus, taking on the role as administrator, distributed many of his soldiers throughout the country to aid in these tasks, thereby weakening his main forces. So, no matter what really happened, we can see the, Ger the Romans being spread out in the region, and maybe kind of Varus is sort of going all over, maybe not concentrating his power very heavily, and maybe being lulled into a false sense of security. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he would probably think the fact that, you know, these guys are coming to me to settle their disputes means that they believe in Rome. They're, you know, they're acting as Roman citizens would act. And, you know, he would probably be all for that. He wouldn't think that they would be on the cusp of a rebellion. Of course, however, they were. Now, the main revolt would likely begin around the spring of nine. It began in the east of the country, provoking Varus to gather his forces and leave the safety of the Rhine Valley to march eastwards in order to put it down. Now, at this point, Arminius remained with Varus. All the Roman historians mention that Arminius was actually betrayed around now by his father-in-law, Segestus. Segestus warned Varus that Arminius was involved in the rebellion, and was pawning against him. Varus ignored Segestus' accusation, likely seeing them as a petty attempt to bring down a, a man who by now Varus seems to have trusted greatly. You know, Paterculus will even say that Varus saw Arminius as a friend. Varus's army would have spent a few months asserting Roman rule in eastern Germania before heading back west in order to reach their winter camps near the Rhine. It was at this moment when Arminius carried out the final part of his plan. Using his position as a trusted advisor to Varus, Arminius led the Roman army down a path of his choosing, a path that would lead them right into the Teutoburg Forest. You know, this is a thing that you see a lot in both Roman history and Roman storytelling, and it's kind of hard to know 
where to unhook the two like how much of this is true and how much of this is historical revisionism and prettying things up we know for example that rome is ruled by this aristocratic class of generals that are also these high-born nobles and that you know they all go to school together and train together and know each other and roman storytelling because you know the romans are stabbing themselves in the back constantly is full of these stories whether it's uh, you know brutus and caesar or caesar and pompey or you know now we have Varus and uh armenius of of these noble brothers in arms betraying each other and this is kind of a thing that shows up so much that you, you kind of wonder if like they're you know reading into it to make the history as we would say rhyme more but you know it all it all makes a a good story nonetheless yeah it reminds me a little bit about you know uh, there's a saying about the battle of thermopylae and how you know everything dramatic we know about thermopylae we just know because herodotus because of one guy you know at least tudeberg we have four guys talking about it yeah, the saying goes, you know, we either write the history of Thermopylae with Herodotus or we don't write it at all. Um, at a certain level, you just kind of have to, you know, accept what these people are saying, um, even if, you know, you, you should be aware of their biases or these literary tropes. Yeah, or at least look out for things that seem a little too convenient. Yeah, and you know, what you said about, like, the, 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 uh, like the noble brothers falling apart, you know, coming to... Um, betray each other. I mean, that happens with Romulus and Remus um, in, in, in Roman myth, and that's definitely a big trope. I mean, another trope will be like the evil, um, you know, seductress women who you know, deceives a king or whatever and leads the kingdom into ruin. That's another big trope to be aware of. It's almost like the most important thing to any civilization is the uh, stories they tell themselves. <laughs> yeah. But. Don't ask my opinion on that. Well, stories and, and guys with, with swords and armor, which we will talk about now because we're going to yes. talk about Jay, the... Jay, uh, can you hear that? Did, did you hear that? That, 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 that all, oh, all of the war nerds are unzipping <laughs> their pants. This is about to get very uncomfortable because we are going to talk about the size, organization, tactics, and weapons of the two armies. Yes, we are about to get knee-deep in... Ancient war nerd shit. Jay, yeah. please begin the ancient war nerd shittery. And you know, as I'll an ancient war nerd, I am very <laughs> excited. Yeah, you know, I'll put my own biases on the table. You know, every every military nerd has like their own like ancient or medieval or whatever faction that they really like. For some people it's the Vikings, for some it's the Crusaders, for some it's the Spartans. I do really like the Romans, so uh I could go on about this for much longer. I've tried to keep it somewhat short. Now, Roman might rested on the back of their famous legions. By the time of the late Republic, the Roman military had transformed into a professional force, one which would continue through the height of the empire. Each legion consisted of roughly 4,800 heavy infantry soldiers, supported by around 120 cavalry. The infantry section was divided into 10 cohorts, each of which were further divided into six centuries of 80 soldiers apiece, 
and these were commanded by the famous Centurions. If you're wondering why a century is 80 and not 100, that's because they'd usually have about 20 or so servants who were like official employees of the army who, you know, who would sign on and would aid in tasks around camp and whatnot. Now, every Roman legionary was a professional soldier. They lived, trained, and fought with their units for years on end. The result was an exceptionally well-drilled and organized army. The Romans could and did routinely perform maneuvers in the midst of battle that their enemies would have simply been incapable of doing due to a lack of similar discipline. Each legionary was equipped with the armored tunic, an iron helmet, a large rectangular shield, and a distinctive pilum, which is basically like a javelin, except it's designed to, to break after embedding itself in an enemy's shield or an enemy's body so it can't be reused. Uh, they would also have a short sword and quite often a dagger. Now, what this meant is that when they were fighting their enemies in places like Gaul, Britain, and Germania, only the enemy noblemen were routinely as well-equipped as the average Roman legionary. Like, you can be a nobody in the Roman legions, and your equipment is better than, you know, princes who you'll be fighting. The Roman legions were backed up by the aforementioned auxilia. One had to be a citizen to enlist in the legions. The auxilia, on the other hand, consisted primarily of non-citizens, though its members would receive citizenship upon completion of their terms of service. These forces were organized into cohorts of infantry and cavalry. Members of the auxilia were still professional soldiers. Quote, basic auxiliaries were equipped as infantry, with equipment similar to their legionary counterparts save for an oval shield and conventional spear, replacing the distinctive rectangular shield and pila. Many auxiliary units were more specialized, however, reflecting the military heritage of the areas they were drawn from. Essentially, Rome would conquer people using the Roman tactics, but then say, Hey, uh, how about you keep doing the thing you're good at, but for us now? Areas known for their archery, such as Syria and Crete, provided auxiliary archers, while areas known for horsemanship, such as Gaul and Iberia, provided cavalry. And the Romans especially came to rely on auxiliary cavalry, in particular as a way for compensating for their own weakness in that area. A Roman is on two legs. And uh, does not even like going in, on a boat. Yeah. Basically, they're good on two legs. Yeah. They don't want to do anything else. Now, Varus's army in the Battle of Teutoburg Forest would consist of the three legions assigned to the district of Germania Inferior. These were the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions. They were further bolstered by six cohorts of auxiliary infantry and three alae of auxiliary cavalry. Though it's unknown how many of these auxiliaries remained loyal to Rome over the course of the battle. Some of them were probably Arminius' guys and thus switched sides. Now, at least some of these auxiliaries were archers, as Roman arrowheads have been found on the battlefield. In total, Varus's forces numbered around 17 to 18,000 men. Dio also does describe the army as being followed by a large number of women and children which is a pretty unusual arrangement for a Roman army, but is potentially backed up by archaeological evidence. You know, we have found some examples like women's jewelry at the battle site. Um, 
this could be misleading. It could just be some guy was carrying some jewelry with him. Or it could be that Varus, not fully appreciating the gravitas of the situation, was basically bringing along with him elements of Roman administration, all his servants, civilian officials, and their families. I mean, if we're to be believed in the narrative right now, he thinks that he's going on essentially a law enforcement mission, not a uh, put-down-heavy-rebellions mission. And he believes Germania to be a widely friendly area. Yes. In contrast with the Romans, the Germans fought in a disorganized manner with no uniform tactics or equipment. Individual German soldiers would have been equipped with whatever they had access to. Some, mostly the noblemen, would have had male armor, large shields, spears, and helmets. Most would have had a lesser combination of those elements. Body armor in particular was likely very rare and very prized amongst the German ranks. Yeah, like, in this part of time in the world, armor is, for a lot of people, besides maybe their weapons, the most expensive thing they will ever own. Yeah. And so, you essentially just bring what you have. If your daddy had a pauldron, well then, you know, you strap on the pauldron, whatever else you can scrounge up. Yeah. And, you know, these fighters were organized along tribal lines, divided into smaller groups, which were based on kinship and, you know, villages. You know, you would fight alongside your brothers or your neighbors. The chieftains would have been the officers. Most German soldiers would have fought on foot. Some would have had horses, but probably only a few. Very few of them could be described as professionals. The vast majority would have spent most of their lives as everyday farmers, hunters, and tradesmen. The Germans excelled at ambushes and hit-and-run attacks. In pitched battles and sieges, they were at a clear disadvantage. In addition to these German forces, an unknown number of German auxiliaries led by Arminius defected to the rebellion. These soldiers would have been well-equipped and trained in the Roman way of fighting. The number of men available to the Germans at Teutoburg Forest is unknown. It is estimated that the divine forces of the Cherusi, uh, Bruturi, and Angravari would have amounted to around 21,000 men, but the German army was likely bolstered by soldiers from an unknown number of tribes. The Germans have the advantage of the terrain and a slight advantage in numbers, but if they go up to the Romans on even footing, they are probably going to get their ass handed to them, even with a numerical advantage. I mean, that is oh, the yeah. strength of uh, those big shields and those tight formations, is the Romans were, especially on flat level terrain, often able to deal with opponents far outnumbering them just through the technology of their tactics. Yeah, you know, uh, a little bit later than this, uh, the Battle of Watling Street would see a Roman army defeat a, uh, a British army, which was much larger than it. Um, this would be the end of Boudicca's rebellion because the British, you know, gave the Romans an open battle, you know, head on, you know, front line to front line, and it did not go well for them. Now, you mentioned geography, and the area on which Arminius led Varus's army was identified by the Romans as Saltus Tudeburgensis, which is what gives us the name Tudeburg Forest. 
For many years, modern historians attempted to identify the location of this forest, with proposals ranging from a variety of sites across Germany and even up into the Netherlands. In the 1980s, a site was found that matches the likeliest route of Varus's army and contains archaeological remains of a destroyed Roman army. This site today is known as the Kalkris and is located near the city of Bromsch in the Lower Saxony. Um, by remains, you know, literal, you know, bodies of soldiers, which makes sense because uh, we'll get to it a little bit later, but, you know, the Roman soldiers were buried there. Um, they also find lots of armor, arrowheads, spear points, stuff like that, and even coins, which seem to have the insignia of Varus, um, the letter is VAR, stamped on them. Dio describes the Tudorberg Forest as a wild and unruly place, mentioning that the, quote, mountains had the uneven surface broken by ravines, and that the trees grew close together and very high. Now, we know that Dial's description of mountains is false. There are no mountains in Kalkris or anywhere nearby, but it is true that the area would have been very heavily wooded. These forests would have made marching a slow and exhausting process, and would have also restricted the effectiveness of the Roman cavalry. But it is, of course, men worth mentioning that, like, it, it ain't like the Romans had never seen trees before. You know, this yeah. is not a situation where they're getting, like, bogged down a swamp or, have, like, like, walked into a place where the, the terrain gives the other side an amazing advantage. Yes, like, the Romans would have known about forests. They would have known about trees. They, they fought in forests and Gaul and Spain and even parts of Italy, but it's... It's never pleasant. It's never what you want to do, typically. Yeah, but the Roman historians are going to say, ah, the trees, they stretched the <laughs> sky, and they yeah, were so yeah. <laughs> dense you could barely see in the shade, and there were mountains and crags and ravines, because you, yeah. you got to play up the defeat. And, you know, and that's also just kind of like uh, it was. Uh, a conventional trope of how like the Greeks and Romans see the ends of the earth as being full of these wild places. And, you know, the further you get to the ends of the earth, the more extreme the landscape becomes. Now, the direct path of the Romans took them down a narrow strip of land sandwiched by hills to the south and marshland to the north. It is clear that Armenius had chosen this site very carefully, as it was ideal for ambushing a Roman army. There is also archaeological evidence for a rampart built along the hills, indicating the Germans might have built fortifications on the battle site in advance of an ambush. Yeah, essentially a, a very long wall, which might have been to keep the Romans from trying to escape by climbing up the hills. Now, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest is really a series of battles that takes place over about four days, and we'll go over these four days now. The first day, which is traditionally dated to the 9th of September, um, would see Varus's army arrayed in marching formation. This was a long, narrow column, likely nine miles in length, with scouts at the front and the baggage train at the rear. Varus himself would be positioned probably about a third of the way down the column. The Roman soldiers at the front would have been busy cutting a path through the forest with axes when the first ambush began. This initial ambush was relatively small, enough to inflict some losses, but not enough to crush the Romans. A brief aside here, this won't be the most detailed battle we've described in this podcast, you know, 
Cassius Dio is not giving us, you know, uh, at this hour, this unit moved here and attacked the Romans. He's speaking in vague terms, and thus we're kind of stuck speaking in vague terms as well. We're doing our best, people. <laughs> Roman historians are so incompetent that even we cannot be competent. <laughs> the, the podcast is beautiful and poetic, and we are, of course, always right. Yeah. Arminius, at this point, is described as asking Varus permission to leave in order to recruit forces from the nearby tribes who are ostensibly allies of Rome. Varus grants him this permission, and Arminius leaves with his men, of course not to seek aid, but to join with the German forces. Basically, Arminius says, I'll go get help for you, and then never comes back. Now, it's unknown why the Romans did not detect the ambush before it occurred. It's possible that the scouts used by Varus were themselves Germanic auxilia loyal to Arminius, and were thus in on the plan, but this is speculation. It may be that Varus's scouts simply failed to notice any German forces hiding in the deep forest. Undeterred by the initial attack, the Romans camped at night and prepared to set out the next day along their original path. As Varus's army set off on the second day of the battle, it was immediately beset by, quote, violent rain and wind, according to Dio. While this may be another literary flourish Roman historians, it is also perfectly plausible as Germany does routinely receive rain in September, and hopefully for them other months. <laughs> While struggling through the forest in the midst of a storm, the Romans found themselves under attack from Germanic forces. According to Dio, the barbarians suddenly surrounded them on all sides at once, coming through the densest thicket, as they were acquainted with the paths. At first they hurled their volleys from a distance, then, as no one defended himself and as many were wounded, they approached closer to them. For the Romans were not proceeding in any regular order, but were mixed in a helter-skelter with their wagons and the unarmed, and so, being unable to form readily anywhere in a body, and being fewer at every point than their assailants, suffered greatly, and could offer no resistance at all. Basically, the Germans are attacking all along this column, and doing what's called, uh, you know, defeating in detail. They're attacking individual elements of the Roman forces, which they can surround, outnumber, and then get away from before the Romans can really retaliate. And this could be uh, aided, you know, the chaos could be aided, the chaos that Dio describes by the uh, women, children, or civilian elements that, that we do have some archaeological evidence. Oh, of course, yeah. Of. It's clear that the fighting of day two was far more intense than that of the first day, and likely inflicted severe losses upon the Roman forces. At nightfall, the Romans were, however, able to establish some semblance of a fortified camp on the hillside, and they proceeded to burn any baggage that they could not take with them. This brings us to the third day of the battle, and this day seemed to offer a bit of reprieve for the Romans. The rain lessened, and their legions were able to reach a section of open ground, though not without taking heavy losses in the process. The Romans continued their advance through the night and into the fourth day of the battle. Dio describes how after the dawn of the fourth day, 
Again, a heavy downpour and violent wind assailed them, preventing them from going forward and even from standing securely, and moreover depriving them of the use of their weapons, for they could not handle their bows or their javelins with any success, nor, for that matter, their shields, which were thoroughly soaked. While the Roman soldiers were exhausted by days of marching and battling in the open rain, the German army was being bolstered by new arrivals, men from surrounding areas joining the battle in hope of fame and plunder. The Germans again beset the Romans, inflicting heavy losses on them. Varus, seeing the situation as hopeless, decided at this point to take his own life. As Paterculus describes it, the general had more courage to die than to fight, for, following the example of his father and grandfather, he ran himself through with the sword. And uh, That is some uh, Roman historian shade right there. <laughs> yeah. Varus's death precipitated a total breakdown in order amongst the Roman ranks. Remember, these are people who crushed their enemies through their discipline, through the strength of their techniques and formations. Without that discipline, without clear command communication, things ain't going to go well for them. As what was left of the three legions fell to disarray, the bulk of their forces, as well as civilians accompanying them, were cut down by the Germans. The majority of the Romans at Teutoburg were killed in this massacre. A small minority were lucky enough to escape the forest and make their way to the Roman fortress of Aliso, while others surrendered to the Germans. Some of these captives were tortured and executed, while others were held as hostages, the fate of each Roman likely depending on the whims of his or her captor. You know, if they wanted slaves, then maybe you're kind of a slave. If they wanted to ransom you back to Rome, um, then, you know, maybe that would happen. And that actually does happen to a lot of, uh, a lot of survivors, which is how, you know, some of these historians uh, interview survivors, because there are people who do survive. Nonetheless, three entire legions, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, are wiped out as effective military formations in this action. Their legionary eagles, which are a symbol of both their pride as a unit and the might of Rome, were captured by Armenius's men. And this is a big deal for Rome. Yeah, what Jay's talking about is these eagles are like giant like metal eagle statues on a yeah. pole. It's like a big symbol that you carry with you. It's like a like a metal banner. It literally symbolizes the pride of the legion. Spiritually, at least, without the eagle, the legion does not exist. Now, the battle at Teutoburg Forest was not the only military action in the fall of year 9. Concurrent to the attack, Germans across the region struck at the remaining dispersed Roman outposts. Aliso remained the sole fortress east of the Rhine to hold out. The Germans attempted to take Aliso itself, but were unable to conduct a successful siege and dispersed when Roman reinforcements arrived. The first reinforcements to reach the area were the two legions of Germania Superior, under the command of... Asperinus. Asperinus. <laughs> As Asperinus stabilized the situation in the final months of 9 AD, securing the Rhine Valley and preventing any Germans from crossing into Gaul, Augustus flew into a panic upon hearing the news of the loss of three legions in the Teutoburg Forest. It's worth pointing out that by this point, Augustus is an old man. He's probably about 72 years in age. 
And it's perhaps his age, or perhaps it was a fear of the repeat of the Cambrian War, during which Germanic armies raided into Gaul, Spain, and Italy itself, that drove Augustus to overreact to the military situation in a dramatic fashion. Augustus is described as banging his head against a post and shouting, quote, give me back my legions. He reinstituted the draft, conscripting as many men as he could and sending them to join an army under Tiberius that was making its way into Germania. Uh, Cassius Stio even explains how many men resisted the draft, which would have been totally foreign to them as the legions had been voluntary forces for over a hundred years at this point. Uh, but these men were, of course, put to death by orders of the emperor. Augustus, the most celebrated figure in Roman history, the guy who these Roman historians are perhaps inclined to speak about the highest, is essentially described as having a complete mental breakdown over his his grief of this tragedy. Yeah. And, Jay, we can cut this part if, if uh, you want, but can you give us, like, any sense of the, the scale of losing three legions? How often was this kind of defeat served to the Romans? Or this, you know, how, what size of, the, of scope is this? So at this point, there are about 28 legions across the empire. So three out of 28 is a little bit above 10% of, of you know, the total amount of legionary forces available to Rome. Now, if 10% of the U.S. army died, you know, in a battle tomorrow, that would be a pretty big deal, I think it's safe to say. That being said, the Romans had taken big losses before. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit later. This is not the biggest defeat in Roman history, and it's not the first really big defeat. But um, it, it is a big deal. Like, this is something which people know about. It's not covered up, in large part because Augustus overreacts to it. And, you know, it'll be of, they'll call it the Varian disaster. And this will be like a known battle in Roman society for years to come in the same way, you know, we all know about like the Battle of the Somme. So even if it's not on paper the largest or most crucial defeat, it lends itself to such a good story. You know, we've been talking about this engaging story uh, and morality play throughout this entire podcast that it sort of entrenches itself in the Roman psyche. Yeah. Now, as the year turned, it became clear that there would be no massive German invasion across the Rhine or even the Alps. Most German warriors had likely just dispersed back home, you know, taking their plunder with them. Now, as you mentioned, uh, the Roman historians largely used to the big forest as a sort of morality play. The overconfident, corrupt, and ineffectual Varus is tricked in and defeated by the dashing Arminius. While it's tempting to dismiss this as an oversimplification, and to an extent it is, it's also appropriate to say that the result of the battle largely was determined by the actions of the two commanders. Varus was probably an able political administrator, but he allowed himself to be talked into putting his army in the, into an untenable strategic situation due to his overconfidence in Arminius. Arminius and the Germans, for their part, executed their plan masterfully. 
As ambushes go, Teutoburg Forest is about as textbook as they come. You know, we talked about them having this army of almost 20,000 people, but when those 20,000 people are spread out over nine miles in a column, those numbers are going to be far less effective in practice. And when you add in ambushes and the weather, dividing them up, sowing chaos, hitting and running, it becomes a lot easier to see how the Romans would crumble. Now, in the years following the Varian disaster, it was co as it was commonly known at the time, Roman armies continued to campaign across the Rhine. Indeed, a force led by Drusus's son, Germanicus, defeated the Cherseri in 15 AD, retrieving two of those three lost Roman eagles, taking Arminius' wife captive and returning to the site of the battle to re bury the remaining Roman bodies. Roman influence would remain an ever-present factor, slowly affecting the degree of Romanization on the barbarians that would continue for centuries to come. Yet, Rome would never again attempt to turn Magna Germania into a province of the Empire. The story of Arminius becomes more obscure in these following years. We know that he remained the leader of the Cherseri, but was defeated but not captured by Germanicus. He seems to have spent the rest of his life struggling with a series of internal conflicts amongst the German tribes, and was assassinated in 21 AD by members of his own families. He had beat the Romans, but was unable to unite the Germans. Because, of course, Jay? No one is competent. <laughs> Didn't even have to tell you. Now, Teutoburg Forest was neither the first nor the largest Roman defeat. Larger Roman armies had been defeated at various points by the Carthaginians, Parthians, and even other Germans during the Cimbrian War, and smaller forces had been lost in uprisings in Gaul and Iberia. What differentiates Teutoburg Forest from the rest of these defeats is the immediate result of Teutoburg Forest. The nearly total expulsion of Roman forces east of the Rhine became permanent. Rome's ability to recuperate from defeats and triumph over their enemies was and still is one of the most famous aspects of their military history. So what is it that made Teutoburg different? It's possible that Augustus's overreaction to Varus's defeat played a large role in preventing further Roman attempts at incorporating Germania. While the loss of three legions would have always be seen as a travesty, by forcing an unpopular draft and scaring his people into thinking that the Germans would soon be at the gates of Rome, Augustus may have made the prospect of further wars in Germany unpopular with the Roman people. In any case, Augustus Caesar would die in AD 14. His successor was his adopted son Tiberius. Uh, we've mentioned Tiberius many times because he was an experienced general and spent a lot of his time fighting the Germans. His campaigns could have left him with the impression that further conquests across the Rhine were simply not worth the effort. Instead, the empire would rely on the indirect methods of control, making alliances and playing tribes off of one another to secure the peace along the Rhine River. And as Rome shifted towards a more defensive footing in the late first century, under emperors such as Hadrian, 
the Rhine would become the permanent border of Roman expansion in the area. Tiberius himself is mostly famous for being stereotyped as not really wanting to rule and spending much of his time as emperor just partying on an island. Uh, Fucking so. kids, killing <laughs> yeah. people, as yeah. you do. Yeah, so going and conquering Germany was probably not high on his list of priorities. Uh, you know, Germanicus does fight a lot in the in, in Germany. That's why he gets the name Germanicus. The Romans kind of had a thing for giving people titles based on areas they campaigned in. Um, you know, Scipio Africanus would be the most famous example named after Africa because he defeats the Carthaginians. Uh, but, but yeah, Tiberius, not so much into that. Now here, I think it's worth kind of going into the legacy of the battle. This battle is famous, more so than most other battles in Roman history. And that's where it comes into the question, should it be so famous? You know, it, it's kind of natural for us today to push back against the notion of a single battle changing the course of history, because that's kind of a very old school way of telling history. You know, history is just a list of kings and battles. In the case of Tudorberg Forest, though, I think it's worth appreciating it as an individual event. You know, other provinces revolted against Roman rule. Britain did it and Gaul did it. Yet the Romans came back, conquered, and ruled those territories for centuries. I think because the German plan was so masterful at Tudorberg, I mean, you know, we can say this was all, you know, Arminius's plan. Maybe it helped. We don't know. But how effective it was in inflicting a victory, um, in, in inflicting a defeat on the Romans, prevented them from returning as they had done in other areas. And I can't really say that, oh, if it didn't happen at Tudorberg, it would have happened eventually somewhere else. Because, again, it, it relied a lot on the specific elements of the situation. It relied a lot on the character of Varus, the character of Arminius, the fact that Arminius had the trust of Varus. And if this doesn't happen, and Rome turns uh, Germania into a province, history would be very different. You know, the Rhine River, as you mentioned, is to this day the border of France and Germany, the border between the French who are descendants of a, you know, the, the Romano-Gallic population and who speak a language which is a descendant of Latin and the Germans who have their own Germanic language. We're talking in the Germanic language, that of course being English, which comes from this area that would have been affected by Roman colonization. And as a result, Teutoburg Forest I think it's fair to say does leave a very big mark on history. Now, its fame also means that it's used for a lot of other purposes. In the 1600s, the Germans, when they were kind of coming up with a sense of nationalism, uh, would rediscover the works of Tacitus and these other ancient historians and use their descriptions of Germany and of Arminius as a basis for a new sort of German proto-nationalism. And no less of a historical figure than Martin Luther himself, you know, the one with all the thesis statements, would popularize the idea that Arminius's German name was Hermann. Hermann, of course, would become very popular in subsequent centuries as a name for Germans. And you can see why in the 1600s, as the German states, um, the Protestant German states were struggling against the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire, 
why the myth of Arminius would be so potent. In the, uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, Arminius would again be used by you know, propaganda, first by the Prussians, then by the German Empire, and finally by the Nazis. Uh, Arminius is not unique in this. Every country looks to their own historical heroes, and a lot of these heroes in Western Europe are people who fought against the Romans. The British had Boudicca, and the French had Vercingetorix. But Arminius was different in that Arminius actually won. To me, Teutoburg isn't just a military defeat or a political defeat. It's a defeat of fate itself. While Rome was not done in its conquests, expanding its empire was getting far harder, more difficult to keep. For its first 500 years, the empire expanded gloriously as it mowed down other civilizations. It blossomed across Europe and drove deep to the north and east. But Teutoburg showed their limitations there would be areas they could not keep, areas they could not take, and with those limitations came a change in destiny, a potential for defeat, a lack of immortality. Tudeborg did not kill the empire, but it did make it bleed. Blood loss that eventually would lead to an anemic empire that would shatter as tragically as they once shattered others. Because no one is competent. Jay, we didn't do the plugs at the front, because I was ranting about how good a movie uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once is. Yeah, the, uh, what the, should uh, the, people the do? sponsored section of our podcast. <laughs> yes. Today, we would like to tell you about what's the, uh, the, the, cl- the closest product to me. Uh, Kirkland Brand Body Lotion. Kirkland Brand Body Lotion. You put it by your desk because it's a convenient spot. Uh, for uh, you uh, to uh, lotion your hands after getting out of the shower because you're getting old and your skin needs its nutrients replaced. But then your friend comes over and... Bum, 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 bum. The rest of this joke has been removed by editor Azalea because it's not funny enough to justify how uncomfortable it's going to make the audience. Please enjoy the rest of your podcast. Anyway, follow us on Twitter at jaharis48 and at azalea wyatt if you want to talk to us suggest some episodes or yell at us in ways that we won't read feel free to email us at no one is competent at gmail.com our music is by the legendary sam bryce and if you want to give back to this podcast that of course has no sponsors and no ad breaks please take like 20 seconds of your time And rate and review us in whatever podcasting app you are using. If you are on YouTube, subscribe, comment, talk to us. Uh, We we will respond. Uh, I I promise uh, that. Uh, Jay, of course, uh, checks the email regularly as that is part of his duties. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a thing that Jay has been doing. (laughs) Constantly. I check it more than my own personal emails. All right. I I mean, <laughs> like, that doesn't ex- inspire much confidence <laughs> because, like, I'll message you on Discord and not get a response for, like, three days. Look, you know, for most of history, you know, messages had to be sent on those, like, a piece of paper or a parchment on a dude who would ride a horse or a boat to get where you had to go. And do you, took a lot do more you than know what days. it's like? 
to <laughs> be messaging Jay furiously one night trying to talk about the podcast or something important and then you see him casually on Twitter just like <laughs> blasting massive threads about these cute VTubers he's obsessed with and then you're like oh maybe I'll message him on Twitter maybe he'll see that there because that's clearly where he is nope that don't work either it's a wonderful life to live Look at that. The Roman Empire was not built on mass instant communication, and they had they had to go at it for like a thousand years or so. I think our podcast would do well to last as long. All right. Thanks for listening. Y'all be good. <laughs> <laughs>